in any ecosystem, what makes an ecosystem resilient is diversity. If you have an ecosystem where it's just one monoculture, then, or even, you know, a few cultures, um, if you have a crisis, it doesn't have as much diversity within it in order to be able to overcome the crisis. And it feels to me like the same thing is happening with education and with knowledge, with our different ways of knowing, our different forms of knowing, our different embodied senses of knowing. Welcome to the Wild Minds podcast for people interested in health, nature-based therapy and learning. We explore cutting-edge approaches that help us improve our relationship with ourselves, others and the natural world. My name is Marina Robb. I'm an author, entrepreneur, forest school, outdoor learning and nature-based trainer and consultant and pioneer in developing green programs for the health service in the UK. listening to episode 19, A Story of Education and Knowledge. For this episode, my guest today is Rowan Salim, who is a geographer, facilitator, community gardener and storyteller who loves to play, make things, meet people and engage in deep, slow learning. I enjoyed how this conversation embraced our ancestry, how we both value the hospitality and generosity of other cultures. And we begin to unpack the idea of progress in relation to the story of education. And we touch on a consent-based, self-directed, sociocratic system of education. If we can learn outside boxes where children can grow up knowing the local places and spaces, then it just may be possible to develop values that align to what we can sustain and create more livelihoods that are based on relationships. We were just talking before we went live a little bit about our ancestry which I hope we're going to get into in a minute. So I'm I'm just going to start with gratitude to my my family, my different families, my Italian background and my English Welsh background and just to give gratitude for the things that they carried in their lineage and passed down to me, things that sometimes I'm not even aware of, um but I'm grateful for their lives. And I'm grateful for the little quirky things that show up in my life now that clearly have come from them. So that's my gratitude to those ancestors behind me. Thank you. Over to you. Oh, thank you, Marina. Um, it's funny, before you said your gratitude, I um, and you invited me to give mine, I knew exactly what I wanted to share. I just felt it really deep inside me. And um, that, is, that was, so I'm involved in a community garden in Putney. And yesterday we, I have, a, I, I tend to hang out there. It's not really a gardening session. I'm just there and people can show up. And it's, it's always the kids who show up. And there are these two kids, they're Albanian. They're about three and five. And I'm just grateful for their 
the depth of their curiosity, of their joy, of their absolutely uninhibited um, like desire to be there, to connect, to play, their patience, their just just love for being outside. And and I'd like to link that to to um, our ancestry, because I think going back generations and generations, well, forever, children always have that. So I'm also grateful to that for my parents, for my grandparents, for their grandparents and going through that that light that sits in all of our childhoods. I'm grateful for that. Thank you. Yeah, I'm feeling that too. It is something special to remember our ancestors and our parents and our grandparents. There's something that really brings people together when we when we bring that into the conversation, I think. And yeah, I'd really value hearing a little bit about your lineage, your ancestry and, and what brings you here right now doing things like community gardens. And I know we're going to talk about uh, sociocratic education, which I, I'd love to unpack with you in a little bit. But what is it about your your story, your history, the history that goes back before maybe even you were alive that you may or may not know that, that you think are some of the strands that have brought you here today? And that could be about your parents or grandparents. I'd love you to share some of that if any of it shows up now. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, I come from a very um, mixed and jumbled and somewhat nomadic background. Um, my parents are, so my mom is Iraqi. She's, her father comes from the south of Iraq near the marshes. And he, um, and he has, he has an interesting story because he um, kind of went through the education system as a young boy and did very well, well, well in what the education system deems successful and worked his way up um, and, and ended up um, marrying my grandmother who's from, from Baghdad, actually near, closer to the Syrian border, between Baghdad and the Syrian border. And they, they then moved with the family all over the Arab world. So they lived in Kuwait, they lived in Libya, they lived in Morocco. My family has a long history in Morocco. So they moved to Morocco in the 50s and then in the 70s and then in the 90s. Um, so, sorry, in the 80s. And then in, my mom is, still has a connection to Morocco. So we, we're an Iraqi family, but in terms of our experience of the land, it's connected to various places all over the Arab world in, in North Africa and in the Gulf and also in the Levant and Lebanon. Um, my father's family, my father's father is Iraqi and he's from, the, from, from Baghdad, but originally from Mosul. So it's interesting for us because we're from different places in Iraq. Um, and he, he's, he's an artist. So his family, my father's family, he comes from a lineage of artists. So within that art, there's always been an exploration of identity, of cultural heritage and of connection to land. So that has flowed through um, my father's artwork and the kind of narrative that I grew up with at home. And my father's mother is German-Austrian, who also comes from a family of artists. Um, but interestingly, my grandparents met, my dad's father was in Germany, went to the festival, to the carnival to, to in, in Cologne, um, 
uh, and met my grandmother and they fell in love. Um, they danced, they fell in love and she moved to Iraq in the, the early 50s, um, about in her early 20s. So my dad then was born in Sudan, moved to China, lived in Yugoslavia, lived in Libya. So my connection to land is interesting because both, both families are very rooted in place. Um, both have a connection to Iraq, um, but all of them and both of them have um, a knowing of different lands and a knowing of place. Um, so, then, so then when I grew up, we also were nomadic. So I was born in England, born in Surrey, um, moved, to, <laughs> moved to Morocco. So my childhood was in Morocco for 10 years and then in Yemen and then came back here, moved back to the Middle East. So, but because, I think partly because of the way both my parents are, everywhere that we went, we, we traveled a lot. So we went on picnics, we went on trips. We do, we're not a very camping family. Um, so I got into camping later on in my life, but, um, but we were definitely a, a family that um, got to know, we got to know the land we were in. So that's very much shaped, um, shaped me and, and the decisions I've taken and what I've chosen to do in my life. Mm. Got it. Feels extraordinary because a lot of the places you've mentioned feel quite exotic to me. Exotic is in, I know, I've heard of them, you know, I've heard of the names, but I've never been on, I think probably, I don't even know if all of those places or some of those places, but I, but my dad did work in Saudi Arabia and um, so I have a kind of Arabic flavor and I traveled as an 18 year old in Egypt and Sudan. And so, and they were, it was really formative, the language that was used and the kind of salam alaikum, you know, peace be with you and the way people greeted each other. And in fact, I, you know, thinking about that, I remember the way people would spend almost five minutes greeting each other in Sudan. I was 18 and I, and I, and I was blonde. Yeah. And people treated me so, so well. So actually you're bringing back memories that I hadn't even thought we would think about. So there's something um, incredible when you just talk about all these countries and these lands and in, in your own heritage. And so how is it with all that mix? And I know we can only touch on it now. How do you think that has informed why your interest in education and, and the choices you've made in education, because I know one of the things that really inspires me to talk to you is about this idea of sociocratic education. And, and actually, I don't really know what that means. Um, yeah, so first, before, before we go into that, how have these, are these images of these different places and meeting different people and these bloodline that you have, how, is, how has that informed what you're doing now? Firstly, I want to just pick up and echo what you said about um, hospitality and generosity. And I think, I think, if anything, that is a theme that has run through all of the places that I've been fortunate enough to live in. And it's really, you know, you, you read about kind of Arab hospitality and Arab generosity. And, and I'd kind of read about it and heard about it. It's almost like a mythical thing. But you feel it. You you feel it because it's 
it's it's embedded in in the land it's embedded in the culture it's embedded in our in our um our kind of equation for survival right um if you i i was living in the north of yemen i was doing some work with unicef on child trafficking between yemen and saudi arabia these are really remote mountains in yemen um very very rugged um very um well i'd say very arid but that's also a seasonal thing um but quite a harsh climate and really try really tribal as well um and just so and just in the midst of that you feel absolutely safe you feel safe because people look out for each other and because you've got you've got some um, codes by which by which you are connected to each other so these are all sorts of things like you you you're a friend for you're if you live with if you're you're there's like mountain ranges and you take care of everyone up to seven mountain ranges away so so if someone comes in to visit you don't you don't question it you welcome them and it's kind of like that story of three cups of tea you have the first cup of tea and then you have the second cup of tea and then you have a third cup of tea <laughs> and then you say Hi, like and then and then you kind of get into why you might be visiting um <laughs> it's <laughs> um so yeah they it's it's really shaped it's that that kind of trust in each other and in the land mm-hmm. has really shaped my experience of living in the middle east but one of the things that happened to me in working in different places and living in different places is uh, i felt torn i felt torn between this kind of sense that the whole world is my home and i can be anywhere i wanted to and this um kind of what's the word the kind of um i want to say fleet-footed but i'm not sure if that's the word like that light-footed sense that you can jump away around from place to place and after about 10 years of working in different countries um all around um swana which is southwest asia and north africa um i realized that there was well i felt that there was something missing in my relationship to place and that was the caring longevity and the rootedness so it's kind of like do you, you know how plants have different types of roots so some roots go really really deep like tap roots to get tap water and some of them uh and some plants have roots which are really shallow but spread quite broadly and wait for the rains to come and some plants have both so my roots were really shallow and i knew lots of places but i kind of knew them somewhat somewhat superficially i i loved them and there was a relational element but i felt that in this day and age too many of us have shallow roots because we you know people you know the, you, you see that today with the kind of the kind of nomadic working culture you can go anywhere you want to if things don't work right that's fine you can go somewhere else but actually i felt that what was and and even ple- people who are based in place are um are disconnected from the land so they can they're they're whether through urbanization or other processes have disconnected from the land and i felt that 
actually in order to to move towards a more sustainable future and to move towards a a, a, a more integrated land caring system what i needed to do was to get to know a land intimately mm. um that's why i'm in putney it's a big choice to come mm. here but that, that's that's why i'm putney and that's why that's partly why i'm involved in the community garden and and other projects here mm. so you yeah. in a way you're kind of saying on the one hand your life has been informed by many places many lands many stories um but at, but at the same time, you've recognised that you wanted to have something deeper, more rooted, more attached. And um, and at the same time, I guess I'm hearing that all that other stuff, all that those different experiences, different places are still informing you. And I wonder about how that is still informing you. Um, are you ready to elevate your forest school skills and breathe new life into your sessions? Don't allow doubt to hinder your exploration of outdoor learning's potential. Without proper direction, young people may miss out on nature's profound impact. Imagine confidently guiding your groups through parks or green spaces equipped with essential skills. Explore theoutdoorteacher.com slash Forest School for my premier online training in forest school activities and begin your path towards becoming a skilled outdoor educator today. And don't forget, if you're in the UK, you have the opportunity to experience the wonders of nature firsthand at one of our direct trainings in Sussex. Dive into the details of our in-person courses at circleofliferediscovery.com. So let's go there a little bit. So, so you're in London. Yep. You're in a place called Putney. Yeah, I am. <laughs> <laughs> and I know that you've been working in a, well, you've been running, is it called Free We Grow, which yeah. is, yeah, is that right? And that's not, is that in Putney? That's not in Putney. No, it's in Lewisham. It's so in it's Forest in Lewisham. So, yeah. you're, so you're involved in two, well, probably many more knowing you, right? <laughs> but at least two uh, projects or organisations. Um, yeah. And it, you're t are you saying that you wanted to do this because you wanted to stay in one place and be rooted? Yeah. yeah. So tell us about those, or, or tell us about those organisations, because I'm assuming you're not on your own, you're part of a community as well. So, yeah. So yeah, yeah. tell us a little bit about this organisation and, and again, this this sociocratic method or way of working in this in this system? I think I might start a little bit to, to tell a bit of story of how I got to doing that. So working Please. in working working overseas. So my mum worked in international development, which is why we traveled as a family. And um, I was embedded in that for the first kind of 20, 30 years of my life. And international development is an interesting world because it's essentially a massive industry that is trying to support countries to develop. Um, develop. Interesting word already, isn't develop. it? It's a very interesting word. And it's an invented <laughs> word. And it's, um, and it's a story. It's, it's, it's a story about what progress looks like. Mm. Um, part of that story, and one of the things I found in the beginning of my career, is that um, is that 
there are certain um, ingredients to that story. And one of the fundamental ingredients has been the story of education. This idea that, um, that education is a right, which in some senses I agree with, but the equating of education with schooling so that there's this kind of fundamental belief that has spread throughout the world that, you know, you, nobody ever says children shouldn't go to school. Um, it's, it's really taken as kind of indisputable that children have the right to go to school. Um, and what, what, what I found are traveling around the world, and I was really lucky to spend the very beginning. So, so when I was a kid in Yemen, we went on a trip to Socotra Island um, with, with my school, and I fell in love with it. And it's one of the first places I went to after finishing university. So I worked on Socotra, which is, which is a community, which is essentially an indigenous community. They speak their own language, a very, very um, um, integrated, a, a very holistic, dating back thousands of years relationship with the more than human world. Um, and even in the most remote places, this idea of schooling comes along. And what happens when school comes along to any place around the world is that you end up um, defining different forms of knowledge. So what happens is um, you get the story arrives and suddenly in order to be educated, which is this fundamental human right, you have to go to school. And what happens when you go to school is that you get a hierarchy of knowledge. So and you lose other sources of knowledge. So you're, the, the knowledge that you that is valued are things like English, math, science, and also um, certain forms of discipline. But what happens along with that is a disconnect from the natural world. So in order to be educated or schooled, you're taken away from the natural world into a box. And if you're lucky, you're taught about the natural world. But more often than not, the essentials are maths and English. Uh, and and maybe science, but but it's bereft of experience and it's bereft of feeling. Uh, what happens is that the learning becomes about your own success and your own grades. And what what I what I experienced over and over again is this this um, separation between people's identities and their culture, their heritage and the incredibly diverse forms of learning and being um, towards a much more narrow definition of what education looks like. Um, so there's something about this story of school, which, which um, well, I, I became interested in. And for the first kind of, between my, like in my 20s and early 30s, I was still very much um, a proponent of schooling because it was a story that I believed in, a story that I thought did me well. Um, and because development seemed like a good thing. Um, and, it's, and it's only kind of taking a step back and looking at the, the, where development has gotten to us in terms of everything from, well, lots of things have been fantastic as well. It's not, it's not all about story. There's amazing advances and in, in technology and health and all sorts of things. But there's also uh, an outright 
um, kind of drive towards environmental destruction. <laughs> so, um, and and social isolation and and disparities and in, in, in well being across the world. So, um, so I I then decided to look for alternatives. Yeah. Um, I then decided to look for alternatives. Sorry, that's a long background story. No, but, it's a perfect back. I, I don't think it's background. It makes it, it's actually really insightful to have a bigger perspective because actually, as mm. you go into the small, which we might get to, it's remembering it's coming from a context, a wider context that's driving progress, this type of progress around the world. And I appreciate just pausing, you know, for a mm. moment and to ref just to hold that, that, that there are these, these forces that are happening around us that uh, we're often unaware of that, that take place in mm. all sorts of fields and industries that are, they're a part of the, sometimes this story. So, so, so thank you. No, that's great. Keep going. Mm. I'm, I'm listening. Well, I, I was just, um, I, I was just going to say that it's the way I think about it is a little bit like, like an ecosystem. So in any ecosystem, what makes an ecosystem resilient is diversity. Is di if, if you have an ecosystem where it's just one monoculture, then, or even, you know, a few cultures, um, if you have a crisis, it doesn't have as much diversity within it in order to be able to overcome the crisis. And it feels to me like the same thing is happening with education and with knowledge, with our different ways of knowing, our different forms of knowing, our different embodied senses of knowing. Um, what schooling does, it feels to me, is that it, um, it ensures that everybody, it's, it's trying to make sure everybody has the same basic knowledge as a, as a, as a human right. But by doing that and the manner in which it does that, uh, which it tends to be quite authoritative, quite top down, quite competitive, quite isolationist, you know, an, an individual person, success is individual, it's not group success. There, there are lots of things to say about some of the issues with the, with the schooling system is that it's, it's reducing the diversity of our ways of knowing. And mm. just like if you have a, um, it's just like in an ecosystem, if you reduce the ways of being, if you reduce, you reduce the biodiversity within it, then it becomes fragile. So what I'm what I'm interested in is trying to find ways of tapping into the deep ways of knowing that we have. Some of them are embodied, passed down through our ancestors. You know, the look in those children's eyes in the forest garden, they've got those ways of knowing until they get schooled out of it. They've got that depth of love and curiosity and engagement. Um, so some of it is embodied ways of knowing. And some of it is ways of knowing which continue to exist in cultures around the world, whether it's indigenous communities or co communities that are looking at doing things differently, um, communities that are connected to the land um, and trying to make space for them and, and trying to, trying to um, support a shift in the system so that their, their education, their learning is not is not erased for the sake of schooling. Yeah, that makes me feel a sadness because 
for a moment I'm I can feel loss I can feel in myself um what we could be losing what we are losing so yeah those words bring bring that to me and and then alongside that I have this kind of rising energy in me thinking oh sometimes we can we can feel I can feel angry about uh the system let's say and and the educational system but at the same time the way we've been speaking about it already today feels like we're in this story most of the time we don't even know we're in this story we don't even know we're in this kind of like progression story and and I and I sometimes feel you know when we challenge when we start to challenge these ideas it feels like we're being anti-something and therefore provocative and uh yeah like trying to cause a problem you know rather than being the kind of in a way gentle that we're in this story and here we are right now beginning to unravel some of these stories some of them uh that there that, that, that there are other stories here there are oh. other stories of these indigenous communities there are other stories of all these different cultures there's other stories of different ways of knowing and yeah, let's not lose them because they are there. They're part of this tapestry. Yeah. yeah? yeah. They're yeah. part of this tapestry and they they hold, it's like the preservation is, as the horticultural societies do, they preserve seeds, don't they? Because, mm. because we need to keep them. But, but I don't even like the idea of preserving them because it's like we're going to preserve them for the Holocaust or something, you know, and then we'll bring them out. You know, it's like, no, 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 no. Mm. <laughs> we don't want to wait. You know, we want to be bringing them in. So... Oh, so with that, it feels what so what are you doing in London? Because I because I kind of think I kind of think a lot of what I do, whilst it can be in urban places, I've been to China and doing all kinds of different things in urban spaces, it is, you know, most of the population of the world are now in urban spaces. So I'd love to hear both the context of what you're doing where you're doing it and and what are you doing we still haven't got to what is sociocratic education you know we could be here for hours and we can't be we're just gonna have to make more space later so tell me tell me about how some of these 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 threads come together on in a rooted way in a project that that you're running and holding with others no doubt yeah all right cool so so yeah, first I I also want to acknowledge that it's um, what what I'm doing is there's, there's an incredible world of alternatives out there and it's absolutely beautiful. We can talk about that later. And the work that I'm doing has come from being inspired by work that's happening, especially in India. Um, there's a with I spent some time at Shikshansar, which is the People's Institute for Rethinking Education and Development. Lots of work happening in South America which is very much rooted in a, in a uh, decolonizing um, 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 kind of ethos. Um, so, so yeah, there's, 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 a, there's a fantastic network of, of alternatives that's emerging. It's absolutely beautiful. There's lots happening in the UK as well. Rowan, um, what we'll do is in the show notes, we'll just put a few links uh, so people can okay. actually kind of track that, yeah? Fantastic, yeah. So well, I got back to the UK, decided to, to to live here, and one of the things, and I did a PGCE talk for a couple of years in a in a normal in a in a mainstream like academy. Um, 
And there are a number of things which I thought needed healing. So one of them was, and most of them around, are around connection and relationship. So it, it felt to me that, well, children, we as humans need relationships. And, and sometimes that gets lost in the rush for, for grades or for curriculum or for whatever it is. Um, so there are two projects I'm involved in, two main projects. One of them is Free We Grow. So Free We Grow is a small, um, so initially we called it Democratic uh, Children's Community. Um, it's very much inspired by um, the ideas of A.S. Neal, um, but also in what and Summerhill School, but it's also really at its essence is trying to create a space where children um, are are respected for who they are and can be in, in authentic relationships with each other, with the adults that, they're in, they're, that they have relationships with and with the land. Um, so trying to create a space that is not authoritarian not, and not coercive. Um, we first got into that with the term democratic and then over the first few years, so we've been open for six years now, moved away from a democracy as a term, even though the ideas are, are, um, are, are important and towards sociocracy. The main, the main difference being that a sociocratic system is consent-based. So we are a very small community. We're only 12 children um, and two adults. Um, and because we're so small, everybody knows everybody else and we can make decisions um, by consent which means that the way the space is run, the activities that we do, um, all the decisions around our agreements and our rules are made, are made with an equal say of, between children and adults. Um, the adults have slightly more responsibility when it comes to health and safety and safeguarding, but um, in essence, the space is run by the kids. Uh, the other important... So, so, so by doing that, what you're enabling... what the fundamental thing about free we grow is trust. So you trust that you trust that children are are naturally curious. You trust that the world is a fascinating place, and you trust that by providing a space where they can have direct connection with the world, with each other, with adults, that they'll be they'll be able to make decisions that make sense both for themselves and for their community. Um, so that that um, operates in terms of the kind of social systems uh, uh, within the space, but it also operates in deciding what we're going to learn and how we're going to learn it. And what happens when you do that is that children play. <laughs> so Free Grow is, is all about play. It's really the only thing that happens. And, and children are wired to play <laughs> and through play they discover a lot <laughs> they discover they they discover who they are they discover who their peers are they discover what the world is about and they push that play in a way that feels um safe for them in a way that feels curious and like aligned with their curiosity and that's why they're able to have free access to the world. So with Free We Grow, we're based in a nature reserve in, in South London. So they have, they're kind, it's kind of free range. So they can be, there's a, there's a, there are two rooms, there's a field center and there's an outdoor space and they can be in, inside or outside. But we also operate um, 
this, we're also inspired by this idea of a school without walls. So we live in London, London's incredible. So we can also go out to local parks, the local library, we can go to trips to central London. So essentially the world, they're oyster, but they have, but they have a community in which to operate and in which to have strong relationships. Mm. One of the things that Frigo tried, sorry, you're going to ask something. Well, I was going to ask just about, I've heard you use this word, play intelligence. Ooh. Yeah. Have I used that? That's yeah, cool well, word. I've read it somewhere. I read it somewhere and I just like that word. And, and yeah. you know, and I also heard you've used this word, um, how can we be play allies yeah. as well? And I, and I, and I, I'm really curious about that. I'm cur- I understand from my own experience uh, uh, how play is the way we learn, <laughs> the way we grow, yeah. the way we socialize, everything. Um, yeah, but but I do think it continues to be incredibly undervalued. And I, and I think it's, yeah. I'm wondering within your context, uh, first of all, are they primary school age? Are they, are they early years up to primary? Yeah, they're, they age from five to 12. They fight five to twelve. So I'm I'm curious about how those children transition, or do they transition to then a mainstream secondary? What what happens? I mean, I, I just feel like I could talk for hours about so many things, but I often when they when children go to something that's different, I often wonder how they then. Yeah. What do they do next? Yeah. So l- let me answer first about play, and then I'll answer yes, about please. what happens next. Yes, please. So so. Yeah, I love the term play allies um, and play intelligence. Really, what we try to do as adults in the space is to, so we're not teachers, we're facilitators. Um, you, tr- you trust that children are, are capable. So, so their children are incredibly capable. What they need is relationships of trust in, in, in order to be able to find their edge. And they're constantly trying to find their edge. So it's kind of leans also into this idea of flow, so flow state, and that flow state, which is this this space where you're you're operating on the edge of your capacity and you know where you want to go, but you don't necessarily know. You kind of know how to get there, but you're you're on you're you're um, everything when you're in your body is driving you driving you forth. And children are always looking for that edge. And whether that is, you know, playing outside in the woods and looking and seeing how far they can jump or how high they can jump or playing with sticks and, you know, reading the other person's body language and knowing how far to, 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 um, how strong to whack or, or whether that's looking at numbers and trying to figure out whether you can, you can do your multiplication timetables in the sevens and eights. Um, there's always that edge of your, your being and, and I think children are seek that. And if they feel safe, they can go there. But I think adults seek it as well. And what, what we try to do is, there's a term that um, my friend Sophie Christoffi helped me coin, which is guardians of flow. So as facilitators, we trust that the children are going to play and we support them. We guard their flow. So we support them to be able to find um, that space, whether that's giving them space, so just saying you can be in the woods and standing back, or whether that's providing the resources or materials that help them explore their interests further. So that's that's what 
that's what we do there. So that leads me on to what happens after freely grow. If you have if you have children who are confident, who are happy, who are able to communicate, who are able to form healthy relationships, who know what they're interested in, um, who are able to learn how to learn. So I can't guarantee that children will know their seven and eight timetables. But then, to be honest, neither can school, right? Um, when you leave at I 11. Can't, I can't do that now. <laughs> <laughs> you can't do that now, right? I read a, I read a statistic. I, I trained as an MFL teacher, Modern Foreign Languages, and I read a statistic once that, on average, um, students who did their GCSE Modern Foreign Languages in the 90s, I think it was, recall five words of that language. Yeah. Um, so you spend a lot of your time learning stuff that you'll forget as soon as the exam is over. Absolutely. And that feels, it feels to me like a, an absolute um, waste of time and of life when that could be used being in flow, doing something you love and enjoy. So, mm-hmm. so the children who've left Free We Grow have gone to a variety of things. Uh, some of them have gone to mainstream school and they've done absolutely fine. Some of them have um, continued to be home educated. Um, and some of them have gone to other kind of democratic slash sociocratic self-directed learning communities. Um, there's one that is free to access in South London called the New School, which is, is offsetted. It's free to access, but it operates on, on um, sociocratic terms and, self, and values self-directed learning as well. So I'm wondering... As I said, there's going to be more information in the show notes. I mean, I feel like we're just like, oh, just looking in just a little crack to find out a little bit about this. But because we started, for me, talking about the wider implications of this notion of educational progress or progress from an international perspective, and you talked about valuing different ways of knowing, I'm wondering how this model um reflect some of that yeah yeah and in and you know because i understand that we we're well i'm interested in how yeah all all young people can have develop some of those qualities that you've just been describing right i'm very interested in that and i'm less interested in about what it's called but i'm interested in you know the ingredients if you like but because we talked about that international perspective and how we've had a story of education. How how is this story different and how does it, Mm. I suppose, expand our idea Mm. of what could be possible? Yeah. So I I, I love this question, partly because, like, we're we're all on a journey, right? So we don't know know what the destination is. It's like we're on a pilgrimage without a destination. Or we have have a dream destination, which which is, you know, sustainable happy, <laughs> um, vibrant uh, life, which is in flow and, and balance and harmony. Um, so that's what we're trying to get to, right? Or whatever words you want to use for it. Um, now, in order to get there, we can only experiment. We can only experiment. And what we can also do is, is question ourselves. It, is what I'm doing aligned with my values? So our, our main kind of value in free grow is integrity because you can have lots of values, but are you able to, in your day-to-day, act in alignment with them? Is what you're doing aligned with, you know, values of, of trust or respect or love, love? We don't talk about love enough 
Paul Warwick um, <laughs> has, has done a pedagogy of love and I want to sing the praises of that. Yeah. Um, Let's link to, to that able, too. Let's link to that yeah, too. Yeah. We need to be able to, to talk about love and, to, act and to, to be able to act in alignment. And then if we're able to do that in our journey, then we can potentially get somewhere that is aligned with those values as well. Um, what I'm inspired by, and this kind of connects to the community garden, is creating spaces where we're learning. So where, if we're learning in spaces which are not just boxes, but we're learning in spaces which are wild, if we're learning in the commons, if we're learning in the community gardens, if we're learning by the streams. And in England, we have a, 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 a despicable history of, of, um, of, of enclosure and of disconnecting people from the land. So that, you know, if in the city, if anything, the land is a stranger. It's not, it's not, some people are acquainted with the land and have parks that they go to or very few people know the land like their kin, um, like their kids have a relationship with it. But if we're able to move to a place where children can grow up knowing land, where they know the willow and they know the hawthorn and they know the elder and <laughs> they know the oak, then what, what, well, my kind of dream is, is that you, then the ways of knowing are also around, around those, those material, the material culture that we have. So if we're able to, um, if we're able to, have enough wilderness around us and know the wilderness and manage it and care for it so that we're making our own clothes out of nettles so that we're weaving our yeah. own baskets out of willow so that we're you know foraging and growing whether it's you know ground elder isn't that tasty but <laughs> if we're getting our spices if we're getting our spices from 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 our local forest then then you're getting into a space where you have local economies where making is valued again making and growing and caring for the land where you don't need to ship your tooth plastic toothbrushes from the other side of the world because you're making your own toothbrushes here where we have a local economy then that knowledge that knowledge we do not have anymore there's mm -hmm. incredible mm -hmm. movements in the uk trying to bring back that knowledge but if we can have a local economy of making and crafts and value that and then we take care of things because we've made them ourselves and we don't need to buy a new bag every season, then we're starting to get into a place where our values are aligned with what the earth can sustain and where our livelihoods are based on relationships, where we know where something has come from. So then we care for it and, and we value it. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm wondering about a teacher, a parent, somebody in a mainstream situation that has never foraged, you know, never weaved a basket, never um, actually even had much chance to go outside because that's also what we're, what the, what many of us are immersed in, you know, our grandparents, our parents, didn't have that either necessarily right so what 
is there any, is there one or two small shifts? Would it be a practical shift? Would it be a mindset shift that could take us to the next place? You know? Yeah. Could you, is there anything, because we're going we're gonna to close this now. Um, yeah. Is there anything that you feel... Because uh, I know you have your feet in both worlds and many worlds. You know, it's not just it, the dream is there. And yeah, let's make it a reality. But we also mm. need to make some tangible steps, don't we? Um, mm. That feel, and you're part, you know, you've talked about consent based education. So that's listening to everybody too, wherever they're at. Yeah. Whatever mm. their ways are. Um, so, yes. Anything you could offer the listeners today that might mm. think, you know, I can't get my head around that. Yeah, mm. I'll, I'll find out more. I'll go to the show notes. I'll, I'll read a bit more. But right now, is there any little shift that you would encourage? It could be with the way you speak to the children. It could be anything, you know. What would that be? Oh, thank you for that question. I, I, think, it's, I think it's relationship and, and listening and time. So what, what children really need is time. And sometimes that's time to find their words, time to not be rushed. Um, and in a way, like the world around us, nature, if you will, needs time as well, time to be seen. Um, and listening and being seen is relational. So if, if you sometimes you think, oh, we don't have time to give time but when you give time you get time it's 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 a it's a mirrored thing um so i think i i think it's slowing down um there's bio kamalafi has a great quote which i love which is these times are urgent let us slow down so and i i would take that i would slow down i would whether you're in a classroom with 30 kids and everybody wants to say something, just actually taking the time to say it. Whether it's, you're you know, just finding one tree in your neighborhood. There's, there's, there's a term I love, which is tree blindness, which is that we actually stop seeing the trees. Um, the other day in a community garden, I was talking to I think a guy in his 50s who um, is getting involved in our forest garden. And spring was just, spring was just breaking and he said the trees have all died I said what do you mean he's like they're all dead none of them have any leaves and I said well it's spring is about to come they'll they'll bloom again he said yeah but they haven't had leaves for months I've been looking at them and and he just hadn't quite realized that trees lose their leaves in winter and grow them again in spring because he until the, until he started having a relationship with specific trees he'd never quite noticed that and you can study the seasons at school, but unless you take time to observe them, it's hard to really tune into how the world works. And if you, if you appreciate that, that, you know, the wild has seasons, that nature has seasons, then you realize that we have seasons as well. And that gives us um, a respite as well, that we can stop and take a break and lose our leaves, bloom again. So taking time and maybe just getting to know one tree, or even giving, you know, giving, you know, a child in your family or in your neighborhood doesn't have to be, or, or in your classroom time to just really 
say and play and be heard. And then, and then they'll, and then that is reciprocated back. Yeah. Thank you so much, Rowan. I've taken a deep breath, uh, many deep breaths during this conversation. And I, and I really appreciate you reminding me about time. And it is in those, it is in those moments of slowing down that somehow something else can happen. Yeah. So thank you. And I look forward to connecting another time. Go well. And this cat, by the way, for viewers, obviously you can't, (laughs) you're not viewers, you're listeners. You haven't been seeing, but we've had a cat, a cat. Well, I imagine it's your cat, Rowan, walking around you pretty much for the whole podcast. If there was a little like uh, interference, that's because of the tail of the cat knocking (laughs) the speakers. So I'm glad that your lovely cat has been part of this conversation. So this is Maisie and she loves a good Zoom call. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. And uh, yeah, go well. Thank you, Marina. Bye-bye. Thanks for speaking to me, Rowan. Join me next week for episode 20, where I want to return to the need to slow down and how the seasons and the wisdom of trees remind us of our nature and our inner landscape. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Wild Minds podcast. If you enjoyed it and want to help support this podcast, please subscribe, share and leave a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Your review will help others find the show. To stay updated with the Wild Minds podcast and get all the behind the scenes content, you can visit theoutdoorteacher.com or follow me on Facebook at The Outdoor Teacher UK and LinkedIn, Marina Robb. The music was written and performed by Jeff Robb. See you next week, same time, same place. Have you ever wondered about the guitar music in my podcast? Well, it's actually my husband, Jeff Robb. Jeff's touring England and Wales with the music of trees, blending woodland-inspired music with stories about trees. Catch him in May, June and July. Details and tickets at jeffrobb.com slash shows.